Thanks for tuning in to the Excel Legal Podcast, an interview-based podcast for lawyers devoted to practice excellence and wellness tips. I'm your host, Shelley Appleby-Ostroff, legal talent development consultant, writing coach, and former practicing lawyer, and I'm so happy you're here. To kick off our mental health series today, I have the pleasure of speaking with the lawyer therapist, Doron Gold. A former practicing lawyer, Doron is currently a therapist and staff clinician at Homewood Health, the provider of the Legal Professions Member Assistance Program, or MAP, in Ontario. Doron also co-authored an online self-learning mental health and wellness program for lawyers on behalf of the Canadian Bar Association, the Mood Disorder Society of Canada, and Bell Let's Talk. Welcome to the XL Legal Podcast, Doron. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. There's some pretty startling statistics about lawyers and mental health. Uh, If you can believe the studies, lawyers have a much higher incidence of suicide, substance abuse, and mental health challenges than the general population. And one third of the profession needs help and has needed help for at least 30 years. Have you seen evidence of that in your practice? Well, there's no question that um... Uh, the profession is full of people who are people but don't always treat themselves as people and so um, they are subject to uh, unique stressors the kind of stressors that most other people don't experience Uh, they bring a certain kind of personality to the table which is often quite similar it involves autonomy and perfectionism uh, and uh, stick-to-itiveness even in things where you necessarily shouldn't continue to try making it work. Uh, and so um, all the demands that the lawyers face or the paralegals face or even the law students face, um, all of the client demands, all the uh, demands of time management and billing hours, et cetera, et cetera, along with many other things, lead to a population that is, as you said, considerably more susceptible to things like depression, anxiety disorders, um, uh, various types of addictions, but primarily alcohol because it's the most prevalent and available. Um, and while they are more susceptible to those things, they are considerably less inclined to ask for help for those things for various reasons. Uh, they can include not knowing that help is available. Uh, they can include, um, even if they are aware of help that's available, feeling as though Uh, this is something they should fix themselves, that there's shame associated with it. They perceive everyone else in the profession as entirely pulled together. And so what they're going through, they see as a character flaw and not a a condition that most human beings deal with at one time or another. They judge themselves as failing, uh, as inadequate, and there's shame associated with that, which keeps them from reaching out and telling people about that because they feel ashamed of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so even those who are willing to ask for help, quite frankly, often uh, don't because they don't think they uniquely can be helped. Mm-hmm. There's something uniquely wrong with them. So the thought process might be, um, yes, I understand that, tr- that depression is a diagnosable and treatable condition uh, that people who seek treatment for, for depression often, most of the time, in fact, I get some alleviation of symptoms, but I have a special brand of depression. I have a special either lawyer brand of depression or just I uniquely am irretrievably broken. And while other people can be helped, I can't. Uh, 
Uh, and that just really gets in the way of people uh, reaching out and getting the help that they need and deserve. Mm-hmm. And what about external pressures or pressures from the profession that may uh, exacerbate sort of the, the personality uh, pressures that you mentioned? Well, there's the some of the things I mentioned, including, you know, the demand for the billing hour, uh, the, the expectations sometimes unreasonable of clients, the fear of making mistakes, which is a huge problem for young lawyers because mm-hmm. they are very much aware of how little they know and perhaps how much opposing counsel knows. Um, and so they, uh, they find themselves feeling very inadequate, um, very much like imposters, that they're going to be found out as the imposters they are. And uh, as such, they, they are stuck in needing a lot of help, needing to ask advice from mentors and, and, and people who know, but being afraid to show that they don't know things because maybe that'll get in the way of a higher back uh, or that'll get in the way of becoming a partner because they need to be self-sustaining and mm-hmm. low maintenance. Uh, so, so many ways that that kind of uh, um, isolating of oneself when one really needs support becomes a problem because then they, they carry the weight of, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to do it anyway. And it exposes me to liability. It exposes me to potential uh, complaints to the regulator. It exposes me to potential lawsuits. The, 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 the stakes are pretty high, at least in their minds. Um, and so, and I should say, by the way, this imposter syndrome issue, uh, while prevalent amongst young lawyers, I know lawyers in their 50s and 60s who feel like imposters. In fact, there was a recent Supreme Court of Canada um, justice speech, uh, Justice Muldaver of the Supreme Court of Canada. So, you know, one of the uh, one of the very few top jurists in all of the country uh, was was granted a, an honorary doctorate of laws from the University of Toronto back in the fall of 2019. And in his speech, he talked about being in his 70s and feeling as though he uh, he wasn't qualified to do the work he was doing. Oh, wow. So if you're on that level mm-hmm. and you're feeling insecure and like a, like an imposter, we know it's not about the objective truth of your ability. We know it's about the story you're telling yourself in your head about how qualified you are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how would someone recognize um, the signs of depression, anxiety, or a substance uh, you know, problem in well, both themselves and in others? So um, I would say those are, those are themselves and others are two quite different questions because we're not objective with ourselves usually. Mm-hmm. And so you can notice in others. So I'll start there because that's a little easier in some ways. Um, You're just a kind person observing another human being. And probably if they have, let's say, depression, then it's a human being in distress. And because you probably know this human being at their best, or at least at some type of a consistent baseline of performance and mood, etc., then what you're watching for is not symptoms and signs you're not a diagnostician you're not there to figure out what's wrong with them if if anything you're just observing the human being diverging from what you know of them they're not Hmm. themselves and when a person is not themselves it's not for you to say i think you're depressed and you should get help it's for you to say you haven't seemed like yourself lately would you like to go get a cup of coffee and talk Mm -hmm. um you know i've 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 perhaps you share your own 
vulnerability by saying I've I've been like that sometimes too and I know it can be really hard and even isolating so just know that I'm here to talk to if you'd like to no no pressure no you really need to talk to me just make the person aware that you notice so it's not a secret they're not you know passing uh, as more functional than they are that you really notice but you notice without judgment mm-hmm. so you're not saying to them you know uh, get yourself together you're saying to them you don't you don't seem like yourself and that must be hard so if you ever want to talk i'm here okay and not seeming like themselves what are some examples some of the so things? Uh, sometimes it's about noticing their mood. They don't make eye contact as much as they used to. They aren't as talkative as they used to be. In fact, sometimes they're quite quiet or maybe they're not even mixing with people. You don't see them very much where they used to come around. Mm-hmm. They used to participate in things. Uh, the quality of their work, the speed of their work, their their office attendance in an era when people were attending offices, <laughs> uh, but also just you know, a lot of people are still being, you know, even though they're working from home during the COVID era, they are still uh, being monitored for billing hours or just, you know, the work, the productivity and the work that they're doing. And if you notice a drop off, there's a, there's a, a metric you can use. You can say, look, we know what you look like when you're, when you're, uh, you know, performing at a, at a good level, at a level we know you to be capable of that's fallen off mm-hmm. and that's not you know we're not saying that punitively or judgmentally we're saying that as it's a warning sign to us that you're not okay and we want to be there mm-hmm. we're you know you're part of a team you're part of a family here uh so if you'd like to talk about it if we can help in some way we'd be we'd, we'd, we'd be honored to to be part of that and that wouldn't be met with resistance based on what you've how you've described the lawyer personality Oh, it, it, it likely immediately would be met with resistance, at least internally. There'd probably be, be, be some, some denial. Uh, no, I'm fine. And there's a, there's a joke that fine is an acronym for effed up inside, nice exterior. Yeah. Uh, because the, the, answer, the answer most people give is I'm fine. It's a dismissive, stop asking me, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they hope you'll just go away and never ask again. Uh, but... What, what, what you're really after is um, letting them know that they're a support, that you're not judgmental, and that you understand that it's potentially uncomfortable, so they might you know, resist hearing it. That's why you're coming to them in a kind way, in an empathetic way, in a non-judgmental way, so they're at least reading off of you that you don't consider them as broken and shameful as perhaps they consider themselves. Mm-hmm. And they may at some point avail themselves of it because they may realize, yeah, I need to talk to somebody. But it'll be on their timetable and they likely won't grab onto it right away. Right. And for you not to push and if you still see the same types of changes after a certain period of time to not go back to them and check in or... It'll depend on what your role is too. If you're just a colleague, then you can just do the occasional check-in you're not browbeating the person. You can just ask the question, how you doing? Mm-hmm. Um, and if they'll say fine, then there you go. They don't want to talk about it. But you're just reminding them, you're not going anywhere. You're a support that's just waiting to be tapped. Right. If you're a supervisor, if you're an employer, you have to you know, balance the person's 
situation with the needs of the employment. There are still standards and requirements that need to be met in the job. And I'm not getting into issues of, you know, accommodation of disability in the workplace. That's a legal issue I'm not getting into, but there are requirements of a job. And if the person is not doing their job, you on the one hand can approach them in a kind way and offer help, but you can also still hold them to, uh, to certain uh, expectations of the job or say, if you can't do those things, uh, tell me and let's, you know, make some accommodations or let's, discuss you know alternative arrangements but it is often helpful for people to know that there is some external accountability mm-hmm. you know a person who is uh who is drinking too much and who's letting it get in the way of their job while there is no judgment of that person that person has a disease called alcoholism if you believe that it's a disease and i believe in some ways that it is then they're not doing it of any fault of their own they have fallen into it and because they've fallen into it, they deserve kindness, but they also still have a job to do. Right. And for them, while it's not the purpose of the employer to get them back into shape, it can be helpful for someone who is dealing with, let's say, a substance use disorder to have external accountability because it helps them realize that people are noticing that you're missing appointments. People are noticing that you've been adjourning court dates a little bit too much. People are noticing that your the briefs that you're writing are not up to the standard we're used to. And because they're noticing, the jig is up, and the person might try to just hide it better, but they also are now aware that whatever they're trying to convey in terms of a, a denial of a, of, a, of a situation, it's there, and it is therefore potentially jeopardizing their standing in their job. Maybe even they're standing in the profession if they if they uh, you know if if what they're doing leads to a negligence claim mm-hmm. or something else even worse, but because um, that's what they're they're hearing now they know someone knows and it's actually my employer and my employer is saying there are still expectations in this job. This can precipitate what we sometimes call hitting bottom. Mm-hmm. The idea that people with addictions are very resistant to any help at all, or even admitting there's any problem even to themselves. But when you have negative consequences, like like, uh, like driving while intoxicated, or um, including you know being arrested for it, like having a spouse leave and take the kids because they're not gonna take your drunken outbursts anymore, or like jeopardizing your job or even your standing in the profession, those are very compelling and they get a person's attention. A person who would otherwise not wanna change their behavior might be compelled to change their behavior because they're seeing tangible consequences mm-hmm. and they're going to have to do something to avoid the consequences getting worse. Right, right. Now, the flip side then, the harder question, how might we recognize the signs uh, in ourselves? That's harder because um, let's just start from the premise that at least a person with a lawyer brain is likely going to think, that they are uh, not unwell, sick, suffering, they're going to think that they're failing, Mm. that they're not living up to the expectations that others have for them or that they have for themselves. And so, as I said before, they'll see it more as a matter of character than, 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 you know, human vulnerability. And there is no cure for a character flaw. You know, there is no medical, uh, 
intervention for a character flaw, so they won't ever consider that there's help for them. My life, you know, I don't have depression. My life just sucks. Hmm. There's no, you know, therapeutic modality you can apply to a sucky life. I just have to make it better. I have to pull myself up by my bootstraps and make it better. And I'm a lawyer. I'm a fixer. I, I make things better. I solve problems. I can solve this problem. I can. I know I can. Uh, except that we're not built to solve these problems on our own. We are, we are attachment creatures, we humans. We connect with others. We need others. Often just because we can't see ourselves entirely clearly sometimes, as I said about being objective with oneself. Mm-hmm. So the help that they need is that they need someone else to talk to. They need to get out of their own heads. I, I sometimes joke that a lawyer left alone with her own brain is a dangerous person. Because <laughs> with a brain like that, with a very, very strong and nimble brain that can take tiny little bits of information and spin them out into utter catastrophe, create an entire world inside their own head where it ends badly. And they're not talking to anyone about it because the, of the stigma and the shame. The story in their head is the truth to them. Mm-hmm. Them being, you know, them being, you know, in a bad situation that's just going to get worse is just true, and there's no hope. So when you get out of your own head and you say it out loud to someone else, and you get back what you're likely to get back, which is compassion and kindness and understanding and affirmation, it's a bit jarring when you were coming from a premise that there's something wrong with you, irretrievably so, and the other person is saying, "Oh yeah, I went through that once too. Yeah, it's really hard." Mm-hmm. I mean, you're very strong for being able to do this. Strong? Me strong? What are you talking about? Hearing someone else offer compassion and offer maybe even solutions, offer that they were, went through something like that similarly and they've come out the other side of it, so it's possible that things can get better. That's why reaching out for help is so essential for legal professionals because they're not actually able to fix their own problems in, the, in this regard. And as you said about how do you notice in yourself, to get back to that question, what you're hoping to, I hope that you'll notice eventually is simply that you f- don't feel well. Maybe you have an understanding of what life is like when you do. Maybe there, hopefully there was a time in your life when things were better. But for some people, things were never better. And they only realize in adulthood that this is unsustainable. I can't keep feeling like this. There's something wrong here. I don't know what it is, but I can't keep feeling like this. Mm-hmm. And are there any um, sort of signs that maybe it's spiraling further into depression as opposed to you've been describing something that sounds like just sadness or not, um, you know, not feeling quite right? And my understanding is those things are quite different than depression. Yeah, depression, uh, if we're going with the medical model, depression is a you know, a diagnosable condition with signs and symptoms. A person who is depressed, according to the DSM-5, is a person who is having trouble getting out of bed in the morning or sleeping for hours or, not, or having trouble sleeping altogether. They're a person who loses their appetite or, uh, or eats too much. They're a person who uses substances to soothe, soothe their depression or their anxiety. Uh, a person who's depressed um, often isolates themselves and, and doesn't interact with other people. They don't participate in activities they would otherwise enjoy. Uh, they withdraw into themselves mm-hmm. and they feel hopeless and helpless. Mm-hmm. The depression is like putting on a pair of distorted glasses. Everything the person looks at is actually worse than it is. And it's interesting to hear you describe it that way because I think 
a lot of people on hearing that might be more inclined to reevaluate their assessment of, well, they just, you know, feel a little off because there's a qualitative difference um, from what you said. And, and when it comes to anxiety, I'd like to hear a little bit more from you about the difference between nervousness and anxiety, because sure. I, I think those things can be uh, confused as well. Yeah. And it's a continuum. So there's not a clear line. Uh, just like there's not a clear line between sadness and depression. You just, one becomes more debilitating. Depression can get in the way of relationships and, and careers, where sadness, can, can, you can have bad days, but we're also talking about sustained pre- presentation of these, of these symptoms, right? We're talking about, it, for depression and anxiety, I believe it's at least two weeks of sustained um, uh, presentation. So it's not just you have a bad day occasionally or even a bad week occasionally. This is over time relentless uh, feelings. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I'll say about it is, about both depression and anxiety is, in some ways they hurt. You know, if you're depressed, it's like it hurts, sometimes even physically, but emotionally it hurts. Hmm. There's, there's There's this sense of hopelessness that can overtake you, that nothing's gonna work out ever, and that hurts. Mm-hmm. And anxiety too, when it feels out of control, hurts. That I lay in bed and can't turn my brain off so I can't fall asleep. I just keep ruminating about the same thing over and over again. It's an awful feeling. It's mm-hmm. a very out of control feeling. And it's more nervous is, look, anxiety in and of itself doesn't have to be pathological. If you're preparing for to argue emotion, uh, like, you know, actors preparing to go on stage, lots of the best actors in the world have stage fright every time. Sometimes it actually fuels their performance. Mm-hmm, yeah, anxiety, yeah. And, anxiety and stress can be uh, a healthy response that, you know, gets you going and helps you perform. When it crosses over into pain, debilitation, inability to function, now we're getting into, into the problem, right? Being anxious in and of itself, look, there's nobody in, in the era of COVID-19 that doesn't have at least some level of anxiety or had when we really didn't know anything about the disease, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, nobody, there's nobody acing COVID-19. We, the, the, the reason it's interesting is because it's, it, there's a few billion people going through it at the same time, so there can't be much stigma associated with it because it's not you not handling it well. It's the world not knowing how to handle this thing that they've never had to face before. So there's a certain pressure that's off by the fact that it's a collective experience, but it's still very uncomfortable. And that anxiety seems to me quite reasonable. Um, there are actually sort of, there are, there are rational fears and irrational fears. If you're afraid to go into the bank because there might be someone there who's not wearing a mask or someone, you know, you don't know if everyone there is healthy or if they have good screening, screening procedures during, during this time, that's not irrational. Those are, that's actually protective. That's, that's your brain making sure you're protected. It's very, very primal. Mm-hmm. You know, I need to be safe. I'm going to look out for things that, you know, that, that might be unsafe. And if, there is, if there's actually evidence out there that there's some, there are some things that are unsafe right now, I'm not going to ignore them. I might be concerned about them. So that's a rational fear to a point. If your fear is that if you leave the house, you're going to get COVID, that's an irrational fear. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's on a continuum also. What we want to deal with is 
we have our some of our fears we all have various types of fears or anxieties like i said preparing for emotion that you're going to argue a little bit of ele electrical charge going through your body might actually be good but feeling like you're entirely incapable of arguing it to the point where you freeze up and have a panic attack and panic attacks are intense they're like like it feels like having a heart attack your chest can tighten up you can't breathe you sweat they're awful that's anxiety turned up to a thousand mm -hmm. and let's let's make it as easy as possible here what is anxiety ultimately i mean there are potentially brain chemical issues involved but for the most part anxiety is a thought thing anxiety is about what your brain is telling you about your circumstances the interpretation your brain has for what's happening right now so the story you tell yourself in your head can either uh, mollify you and make you feel better it can be neutral and you're just living your day-to-day -day without you know any particularly concerning thoughts but sometimes the stories inside your head are are completely shutting you down you know I'm I know people who don't date because they're absolutely certain no one would want them hmm. and to the outside person uh, they are intelligent and kind and professionally successful and attractive and like there's nothing there that would make you think that there wouldn't be someone who'd want to who, who would want to spend time with them but if the story in their head says I have nothing to offer who would want to be with me then that's the truth and it's awful because it's lonely and it's and it makes the person feel unworthy and less than so um, so those thoughts are things we try to work with sometimes we work with them through cognitive behavioral techniques you can use cognitive behavioral therapy there are books like mind over mood which is a good workbook to start with but there's also counselors that you can work with uh, cognitive behavioral therapy basically works with the thoughts themselves and tries to reframe them tries to line them up against reality and check you know what is the evidence that this thought actually is grounded in reality versus it being a cognitive distortion of black and white thinking um, catastrophization things like that but there are other ways to deal with anxiety too you can work with the feeling itself you can you can you know one of the best tools for fighting anxiety is exercise moving your body mm -hmm. it has it has profound impact on anxiety symptoms it helps your body process the energy of the anxiety and and channel it and keep the energy flowing through your body so that you're not getting stuck in one spot mm-hmm that makes such good sense and I'm that sounds like something to help lawyers um, stay healthy even if they're not suffering from any particular um, mental health um, symptoms I'm wondering if there are other strategies to help lawyers stay healthy or even um you know before they get to that point of reaching out or someone reaching um out to them to suggest that they seek help what, what are some of the other strategies maybe that lawyers um can employ when they start to feel a little off how much time do you have um <laughs> there are there are there, there's a million of them uh but uh a few of the most important ones are attending start by attending to the basics right what is your nutrition like because the fuel you put in your body affects not just your physical health but your mood uh, if you put sugar water in your gas tank of your car your car is not going to move properly you need to nourish yourself properly um, you also need to uh, move your body as i said 
uh, and that includes moving your body outside during this era. A, it's because you need you know vitamin D. You're locked away, and you need to get some sunshine, especially in the, in the warm summer weather. But you also just need to get some fresh air and feel not so cooped up all the time. You mm -hmm. need the counterbalance to the four walls that you're in most of the day. Um, another essential piece is sleep, which a lot of lawyers treat as just a luxury that they may or may not be able to afford. And you don't function well if you don't sleep. It's a, it's a cornerstone of human functionality. Your body needs that time. Uh, it needs to be in darkness. It needs to be uh, in a comfortable bed. It needs to have a consistent uh, bedtime and wake-up time, even on the weekend. Um, there are certain. There, it's described generally as sleep hygiene, and I often recommend to people, instead of me listing all the elements of it, go online to a reputable website and, uh, and look up the term sleep hygiene and look at all the different thing, suggestions they have for healthy sleep. It includes not having caffeine or alcohol a certain a certain period before bed, or even eating soon before you go to bed. There, there are all kinds of suggestions that they have. And since I mentioned alcohol, let me mention again, overuse of substances is is so corrosive to mental health. Uh, a, alcohol is a chemical depressant. So mm -hmm. you are literally depressing your system and depressing your mood. And it is also a, a an obstacle to good sleep. People often think if they drink, uh, it'll help them fall asleep. It might, but it will keep them just below the surface. It mm -hmm. will not. It will get in the way of them having deeper, more healthy sleep. Uh, so alcohol absolutely is not helpful with sleep. It gets in the way, and and overuse of any substance, overuse of pot, which is much more prevalent now. I know a lot of people who smoke pot every single day and think that it's innocuous. It's just pot. It's almost like the name of the drug is just pot because that's, that's what they call it. It's, it's potentially addictive, but they don't look at it that way because they think it's just pot. So you can't be addicted to pot. No one ever hurt anybody on pot. Yeah, but you're also having negative impacts on yourself in terms of your ability to think and concentrate and be productive in your life. And it can affect your mood, not always well. It's really a problem for teenagers and young people because their brains are still developing and it can have a negative impact on their brain development. So any overuse of anything, really. You know, the mm. old story about everything in moderation is true. Um, uh, so that includes substances. And um, some of the other things that we recommend for, for lawyers, uh, you got you to be doing something that you actually, in some measure, like. Mm. There's a sort of a, a running commentary people have about lawyers that they don't know any happy lawyers. Now, I know some happy lawyers. But I also know a lot more unhappy lawyers. And in part, it's because there's this sense of, you know, you got into law school, so you've got to go, and you're, all your intentions were good. But now that you're in, maybe you don't like it, but you have to finish because everyone expects you to. So you finish law school. And in Ontario or in Canada, we have an articling experience, which is, a, which is like an apprenticeship you have to do before you get called to the bar. And now you've done that, but you, now you have to get called to the bar, whether you actually liked that process or not. Uh, now that you're called, now that you're called to the bar, you have to practice law because that's what everyone expects. It's funny; everyone who hears that you're a lawyer will not be able to contemplate why anybody wouldn't want to be a lawyer. Uh, and there's lots of people like me who were lawyers who are now doing something else because it's not for everyone. We need to be who we are, and some of us realize as we do certain jobs, not just law, that it's not 
what we thought it was going to be. And it's not fitting my values. It's not making me passionate. I might even dislike it a lot. I was a litigator. Hmm. I'm not a fighter. I could do it. I was good at it. That didn't make it good for me. I was unhappy a lot of the time because I was constantly at war with somebody. And especially in an uncivil bar where people, you know, in big cities where, you know, they just see you on that one matter, but they never see you otherwise at the they feel free to treat you any way they like. Uh, it's very uncivil and therefore very unpleasant. It's not a nice way to live unless you enjoy the fight and some people are built for it. Mm -hmm. uh, I like to quote um, Albert Einstein on this, which when he said that uh, everyone is a genius, but if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will think it's stupid. <laughs> and and, and, I, and the, the fact is there's a lot of fish trying to climb trees in the legal profession. Mm -hmm. A lot of people who feel like I got to keep trying to make this work because I don't quit and I'm not a quitter and I don't give up. I persevere. I slay dragons. I don't give into them. Mm -hmm. So they keep trying to climb the tree with their gills and they keep trying to do the thing that they don't fit into, not because they're failing and not because they're not good enough, but because they never fit there. It wasn't, yeah. it's not a good fit for them. It doesn't fit their values, but they couldn't know it until they did it. And then once they make a change and they move into something more along the lines of their passions and their values, they have a revelation about, I should have done this sooner. Yeah. So, so sad. personal fulfillment, a, a necessary part of mental health. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as you're saying, it's so prevalent, unfortunately, amongst lawyers, that uh, lack of satisfaction. And I don't know if that there's anything that we can suggest to create, I guess, raise awareness that that's something that is important for your mental health. And it's also something that you share with others, with many others. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's also, there are some, I mean, some of the things I suggest are, it doesn't, it's not like, you know, you have to be like me and just leave the profession altogether. I mean, I do, I do sometimes joke that the law is not the mafia. You can get out. But at the same time, the law is an amazing profession. And if you actually uh, are inclined to certain areas of it, you're just not in those now. You know, you got out of law school and the only job you could find was in a real estate law office. And real estate law is not of interest to you at all on your board. Or maybe it's not the area of law that's the problem, but you're working in a, in a big tower in a downtown of a big city and, you know, in a firm of 500 people and, and, the, the hours are crazy and the, the work is nonstop and your boss is not nice to you. Maybe the environment you're in isn't where you should be, but there might be better environments to work in where you can practice law and enjoy it. Maybe you just need to do another area of law. Maybe you're just working for a particularly abrasive person and if you found nicer people to work with. It might be a much more pleasant experience. Mm -hmm. It's finding your way through. I, 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 I borrowed Martin Luther King's, uh, statement about how the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And I like to say that the arc of a legal career is long, but it bends towards fulfillment. Hmm. The longer you go and the more you pay attention and adapt, the closer you get to something that actually fits who you are. Mm -hmm. Any tips um, that we could offer listeners who are sort of on the fence, not so sure if maybe this is for them, yeah, any suggestions? It depends what the this is. So if they're not, a lot of people think maybe law isn't for me, but it turns out, as I said, that it's not about law. It's just about the environment they're in 
or the or the area of practice they're in or or if they're in private practice and they really are more suited to government work things like that or, or research or academia it's trial and error in many ways including paying attention to yourself and your own awareness of your values what about the job you're doing right now do you enjoy if anything because mm-hmm. if you could take the things that you like and shed the things that you don't find a job in which you get to do all the stuff you like and don't have to do much of the stuff that you don't like now you've moved closer to something that actually fits you it's a journey that you go on it's it it there is an element of trial and error to it where you start is not necessarily where you end up uh, but you have to be you have to be giving yourself permission to audit your circumstance in any given time and say is this what i want you know, am I where I want to be or am I sort of where I ended up and I'm just stuck here? Nobody is stuck. Even people with enormous financial obligations who can't imagine what else they could do to pay for the private school and the mortgage and all, and all of that, uh, they still can look around, look inward and try to assess what's something I could do that would make my quality of life better and still allow me to make the living that I need to make. Mm-hmm. You never stop searching for that. Right. So it seems like self-reflection would be really helpful. I would, I would journal it. I would say mm-hmm. people should keep a journal to have a check-in with themselves. I know people who do a daily check-in with themselves, just a one to 10 scale. How am I today? How am I feeling today? And if they have a number of days in a row that are like four, three, four, four, two, uh, something's got to be addressed. That's not mm-hmm. a life. Mm-hmm. And I've also heard of um, gratitude journals or people doing morning pages, getting up in the morning and just doing a, a three-page stream of consciousness just to kind of, again, get those inner juices mm-hmm. um, going. Have you found that those, are, are those some strategies that you've recommended to clients and yeah. have been helpful? Gratitude journals are really interesting because they are all at once um, – looked at uh, askew by people. Oh, that's something, you know, that you get from an Oprah show or something. Yeah. But they're also verified clinically in study after study as being very effective in, uh, in counteracting depression and anxiety. And why is that? Think of it in the context of lawyers. Lawyers are built to be pessimists. Uh, Martin Seligman, who's the sort of godfather of positive psychology, wrote it in his book. He talked about lawyers and pessimism. You hand a lawyer a document and say, find every hole you can find in this document. Uh, and they buckle down and they cross every T and dot every I and they, they fill every, every gap and they're rewarded for their focus on the negative, on the remedial, yeah. on what's wrong. Lawyers focus on pessimism. They focus on negatives, on what needs to be fixed. And they don't give a lot of time to the things that are already fine and good because it's kind of human nature to take for granted the things that you already have. You know, I'm, I'm not going to congratulate you for not killing anyone today. You weren't supposed to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the truth is that being a good person is something you should acknowledge in yourself. You should give yourself credit for being honest. You should give yourself credit for being kind to people. It's not just you were supposed to so you don't get credit. So gratitude journals are about just adding a counterbalance to all the focus on the negative by reminding yourself there are actually some things in your life that are working out just fine. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And there's no reason to assume that that those things should be happening. There are no bombs falling on my house. Thank goodness. <laughs> but there are in other places in the world. I'm not entitled to safety. I'm lucky I have safety. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to appreciate it. And yeah. a gratitude journal is not just about appreciating health and safety and all of that. It's also about appreciating a delicious meal or having walked by a, uh, some flowers that you noticed or being reminded of a song you used to love. It's little things and big things that fuel the sense of, I have a whole life, some challenges and some blessings. Mm-hmm. And I imagine once you start to shift your focus or your perspective, that you start to see things a little, like other things differently, starting to be appreciative that, oh, you know, uh, someone let you in on the Queensway or whatever as you're driving yeah. to work. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's no question that you start, you lighten a little bit, ideally, because if you're always negative, you're also probably your mood is probably negative, mm-hmm. and you're probably expecting the worst from people, which is why it's great, you know, if you're on Twitter occasionally. And by the way, I'm on Twitter. I have a a, a law related Twitter feed at Duran J Gold. If anybody's interested, it's mostly just legal stuff and the occasional you know puppy dog running in the yard. <laughs> and great. but there's there's lots of little videos you'll see on Twitter of inspiring things, people being kind to each other. Those are actually really soul feeding. Mm -hmm. They remind you that people are complicated, but part of the complication is kindness and decency sometimes. Mm -hmm. And we need reinforcement of that, especially in times when there's lots of negativity and lots of people judging each other. And uh, it helps to be reminded that sometimes people can be good. Yeah. And also that you know, sense of community and that we're all in this thing called life together. Uh, and just going back to what you had said early on about not suffering in silence. Uh, I'm wondering if someone does recognize some of the signs that you've been talking about or um, someone recognizes it in you and brings that to your attention, are there any particular resources um, that really understand the lawyer personality and the challenges of the legal profession that uh, you might recommend? Well, um, the easiest place to start if you're talking about lawyers specifically is simply a lawyer assistance program. And lawyer assistance programs exist in pretty much every jurisdiction in North America and around the world. Uh, Every state in the United States has a lawyer assistance program, as far as I understand it. Every province and territory in Canada has a lawyer assistance program. Britain has one. Australia has one. Um, uh, Ireland. I recently met someone from from the lawyer assistance program in Ireland. The idea is that the profession, wherever you are, identifies that... um, the legal profession is challenging and it is actually in the interest of clients and in the administration of justice that lawyers uh, not just suffer in silence and uh, it affects claims. It affects uh, the quality of work that they're doing. Uh, And so it's better to have lawyers who have available to them healing resources. And so that's what lawyer assistance programs are for. These are organizations that know legal professionals know the type of people involved, know the stresses, and also offer, in varying degrees, depending on the jurisdiction, various resources. Some of them offer counseling resources, some of them offer peer support resources, courses, um, psychoeducational presentations, 
uh, about various issues uh, that people are dealing with. They'll come to law firms. There's also, you know, in the, in the American Bar Association's done a lot of work around uh, lawyer wellness, and they have a lawyer wellness toolkit on the internet that you can look up. Uh, in Canada, the a number of the jurisdictions have uh, the the regulators have studied mental health and addictions. On, in Ontario, in British Columbia, there were task forces that did extensive investigation and reported back and then started to implement strategies around uh, the way they regulate more humanely, but also the way they support members of the, of the legal community with programs like lawyer assistance programs, where they support uh, anti-stigma campaigns and helping firms to be more humane places. And so, for instance, in Ontario, we have a, uh, an organization called the Member Assistance Program. It's operated by Homewood Health, which is the company I work for. And it offers free counseling from basically the moment you get into law school or, or paralegal school forward. It's for paralegals and lawyers and judges, uh, as well as the students in paralegal and law school, as well as their immediate family members. Hmm. And they, they get uh, a free service. They get a confidential service. And that's something that all lawyer assistance programs emphasize because especially if your regulator is also the funder of the lawyer assistance program, lawyers are very um, uh, cautious about sharing personal vulnerable information uh, if they're concerned that it might get back to the regulator uh, and they think, you know, they, they suspect that the regulator has required the assistance program to report on people acting improperly. And that's not how lawyer assistance programs work, at least not most of the ones I know. Some have more cooperation with the regulator, but they're upfront about it. Ours in Ontario, completely separate. We never report any personal information about who's contacted us or, about, or, or what they've said to anyone, not just mm -hmm. the regulator, anyone. No one knows what, what is it people talk about. And so we have counseling available with professional therapists, um, social workers, psychologists, etc. Right now it's occurring by phone or by video, as well as um, e-counseling, which is an internet-based modality. We've been face-to-face -face counseling all this time, except that once COVID hit, we, we, we curtailed that. But I expect that we will return to that. And we have counselors all over the province. So it's not just, you know, in a big city. They are everywhere. And all the person has to do is call the line. Uh, it's uh, In Ontario, it's 855-403-8922. I'll say it again, 855-403-8922. There's also a website, myassistplan.com. So we offer counseling. We also offer peer support. I mentioned peer support earlier, and it's something that a lot of jurisdictions offer. I know British Columbia has excellent peer support uh, network across the province. It's simply just lawyers and paralegals who have lived through their own life challenges and who are doing much better and feel uh, compelled to help a colleague, hmm. to, to be kind to someone, to help them break out of that isolation because they probably saw that they had that at some point and know how powerful it is to have a compassionate voice to talk to. So the person will call and request peer support and we will get a sense of who they are and what they're going through, what are their issues, what are the unique things about them, including things like gender, sexual orientation, culture, age, geography, any things, any indicia that we can line up that allow us to match them with someone with similar lived experience. You know, for someone who's been through alcohol issues, you need to talk to someone who understands it, who's been there themselves. They speak mm -hmm. the language. For someone who is a person of color, it is helpful 
often, not always, but sometimes it's quite relevant to talk to someone who perhaps has experienced racism in the workplace. Um, for for uh, a, a person who's L LGBTQ plus uh, and has experienced certain types of experience in the workplace or even just in life, it helps to talk to someone who's lived that themselves. Um, and we, so we try to find as many affinities as we can. And at the core, it's talking to another member of the profession. So they also speak that language. Mm -hmm. And also it takes, uh, takes away some of that fear of going to see a therapist. Uh, yeah, it's not counseling at all. If the person yeah. is not an expert at, at, at counseling, the person is just another human being who's been through it. So they model a kindness, which the person might not expect to receive. So they're quite relieved to get kindness directed their way. They also model recovery. Here's a person who's been through something similar to what I'm going through, and they're doing quite well. So recovery might actually be possible for me too. That's also very important for the person to realize. That's mm -hmm. where peer support can be really helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we've just provided us with so many wonderful tips and, and resources. Uh, I'm just wondering if there are any things that we haven't covered that um, you think that listeners should, should know about this really, really important topic. I, ultimately, um, you are self-directed. So you, you assess for yourself for the most part how you're doing and whether you should ask for help or not. And the kind of help that you need might just be uh, just finding your own counselor. It doesn't have to be through a lawyer assistance program. Um, it can be just talking to colleagues. It can be being part of a, a support group uh, for various issues. Lots of organizations have support groups to support people going through specific kinds of issues. Um, it can be just having a little debrief group in your office. If you're a, if you're a prosecutor or a crown attorney who prosecutes crimes and you sometimes, you know, experience vicarious trauma because you've, you've had to deal with some really difficult evidence or, or stories, uh, the likelihood that other people in your office have too. And it would help if you had a support system in your office where you share with each other some of those stresses to dissipate some of the some of the distress that it causes. You see how so much of what pervades what I'm saying today is about kindness and the absence of judgment. Mm -hmm. And not judging oneself is not what lawyers are good at. <laughs> so I emphasize it because you're likely just a really good person who happens to be suffering right now, who deserves some relief. You're not doing anything wrong. You, you're being a human and humans sometimes suffer. And yeah. When we suffer, we need to reach out for help. Yeah, and you're worth it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, Doron, thank you so much. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us and um, sharing all these great tips. And you've mentioned the uh, Fridays with some phone numbers and mentioned uh, the program, the Ontario program. I'll create some links in the show notes um, to those as well and, and, and other ones that... Um, that uh, I think would be helpful. So thank you again. And uh, I know that you have touched many, many listeners and you certainly touched me and I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today on the Excel Legal Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and that you'll tune in next week for the second episode of our mental health series. I'll be talking to journalist Eileen Zimmerman about substance use and addiction within the legal profession and her new book, Smacked, a story of white-collar ambition, addiction, and tragedy. I'm always looking for topic and guest ideas, 
So if you have any suggestions for future episodes, I'd love to hear from you at xllegal.com. That's E-X-E-L-L-E-G-A-L.com.